You're listening to The Happiness Hub, part of the Redshift Community Podcast Network with me, Liz Parkin. And me, Kedron Elliott. Every episode, we'll share top tips on how to get happy and stay happy. So listen in, get involved and be happy. Hi, listeners. You've tuned in to The Happiness Hub podcast. And this week, we've got a very special guest who I really love talking to. Um, Saskia Lightburn-Ritchie has been on our podcast before. She came on the second series when we were interviewing local mental health charities. So Saskia is the CEO of the local domestic abuse charity called Cheshire Without Abuse. And while she was on, she talked a little bit about herself and about some of the things that she has challenges with every single day. So she was a perfect guest to have uh, back on. For this series about chronic and hidden diseases. It was fantastic talking to Saskia, really enlightening and I think if you suffer from any chronic disease or condition you'll get a lot from this episode, especially in terms of how she kind of manages her mental and physical health day to day as well with the self-care plan. Saskia suffers from several different things and again with like most of the people I've had on the podcast to look at her you would, wouldn't know that she has these struggles although she calls them her superpowers she talked primarily about living with bipolar but she also has a, a series of health conditions that kind of came out the back of her being diagnosed with bipolar so she also has diabetes she also has colitis and she also talked just a little bit about her dyslexia as well I, there's loads of notes in in the the podcast notes as well about all the things that she mentioned particularly around describing uh, your fatigue to friends and family using the spoon theory which is only something i recently found out about so you might find that really useful and also links to um the book that she talked about an unquiet mind by a lady called kate redfield johnson um, so I've uh, linked all of that in the podcast notes and brilliant podcast. If, you, if you've listened in and you've got any comments about what you thought about the podcast or if you've got any questions for Saskia, I'm sure she'd be happy to answer those. Or just any feedback from the, the podcast, please do let us know. We're also looking for guests for this series as well, covering all different types of things. I mean, Saskia's got quite a few different conditions she talked about, but we didn't really delve into the world of living with dyslexia and how that can affect you in day-to-day life. Um, She made some fantastic points about when you do get diagnosed with certain sort of conditions that the doctors and professionals don't really talk too much about how you can get on with day-to-day life, and it's quite often left to people's own devices um, and being creative about how they manage um, their symptoms uh, from a day to day but how they manage doing just everyday things that sometimes these conditions can really uh, hamper doing just simple everyday things so uh, we'd love to hear from you and do get in touch with us you can comment um, on the podcast itself we also do have a happiness hub facebook group as well it's a closed group so you can request to join that and we also have a happiness hub website as well which is happinesshubuk.org and all our details on there our blog is on there and we do a weekly blog as well that supports the podcast and also our email address which is info at mentwitchbuddies.org um, so please do get in touch with us if you would like to be a guest or if you've got any comments about the podcast or any questions for any of our guests I'm sure they'll be more than happy to, to, to answer any questions that you have
Right, hello, you are listening to The Happiness Hub with me, Kedron Elliott, and this is our fifth episode of our fourth series all about chronic and hidden conditions and diseases. So we have a previous guest that is joining us today, and we have Saskia, who is the CEO of a local uh, domestic abuse charity, Cheshire Without Abuse, has joined us today. So thank you, Saskia, ever so much for coming back on the podcast. How are you doing? I'm very well, thank you, and uh, happy to be back on. Yes, thank you ever so much uh, to come back on. We've got lots, absolutely loads to talk about because there's lots of things I want to cover with you today. But um, yeah, it was just after Christmas you came on the podcast before and and told us all about the fantastic charity that you uh, are CEO of. What's been happening since um, since we last spoke to you? Um, we're still facing just huge, huge demand because of COVID which is continuing to be a challenge. It's very difficult to recruit staff to vacant posts at the moment, so the team's under quite a lot of pressure. We've seen a huge increase in ill mental health of our clients, which has been partly as a result of being locked down with the families, partly as a result of financial pressures if they've been furloughed or they've been made redundant. Um, It's been that's been particularly challenging because we've seen a, a, an increased number in people who have just felt like there's nowhere left to go. So we've had a, a significant number of attempted suicides. Um, we've had two clients who've um, died by suicide. Oh. So it's really relevant, I think, to be on a podcast about health and, and well-being because I think that is the biggest impact of covid and not directly as a result of having the infection so it's the wider health um, and well-being impacts on people i think that are, are causing the most problems at the moment so no sign of um things easing off we're not seeing a drop yet in the numbers of referrals or the numbers of stressors uh, but the team are amazing absolutely fantastic team who just you know go above and beyond constantly so I'm, I'm really proud of the work that the team have uh, continued to do and we've seen some really positive outcomes for people as well as a as a result of the support that they've had so it's not all doom and gloom it's uh, hopefully looking up as things open up more um but yeah it's been definitely interesting times as a result of the pandemic yeah I know last time when you came on you said that you would support and double the amount of people that you you've ever supported before is, is is that increased further it's not increased further it's maintained yeah. at, at that for the last kind of three to six months it's more that the issues they're presenting with are more complex so we've seen a significant increase of about 40% in cases that are more high risk than usual and those that where ill mental health is just a, a real massive factor that has to be tackled before you can start to tackle any of the other issues that uh, people bring with them it's it's uh, yeah it's the complexity I think that's the challenge rather than the the numbers Mm-hmm. You also uh, mentioned about just briefly about recruiting as well. Is that something that you're looking for to get more people helping? We, we absolutely are. We've got recruitments open at the moment. If people want to look at our website mm-hmm. uh, and our social media, um, but this isn't just a, a problem for us locally. This is a national issue for domestic abuse services. There's a, a real challenge at the moment with 
recruiting people to posts in domestic abuse organisations, so much so that the Home Office have just done a consultation with agencies like ours to see if there needs to be a national campaign around recruitment. Mm-hmm. Um, and that that is a, a real challenge because at the moment, probably a quarter of our roles are vacant and that puts immense pressure on the team that are in post you know who are trying to juggle all of that work um when we're so short-staffed so yeah um we're we're definitely keen to recruit where we can Mm -hmm. yeah and and a level of work that you guys are doing as well because with that increased risk it must be very demanding what really kind of struck me because I'm from a counseling background myself, just the fact that so many organizations like yourself are so reliant on so many volunteers because a lot of your counselors are voluntary positions. All, all of our counselors are volunteers and our domestic abuse practitioners, they're all paid roles and our behavior change workers are paid roles. Um, but our counseling service is run solely by volunteers. We wouldn't be able to run it without our volunteers. Um, and we're, we're always recruiting volunteers uh, as well as peer mentors as um, for the counseling team. But obviously they have to be qualified counsellors and just to support with our, our general work. I think coming from the the buddies background I know the work that we do is very different to yours but we we cocked up um some of the hours that we'd done uh, during like the whole year since we come around to March and we're still sort of in lockdown this country wouldn't be able to have managed <laughs> managed COVID without the amount of volunteers no that... it, it, it absolutely wouldn't I, I've literally just done that exercise last week working out what. Um, hours our volunteers have done and it's um, something like 15,000 hours Mm -hmm. over the course of the year and if you worked it out as a just a you know a basic pay rate not even anything fancy we're talking about 250 to 300,000 pounds worth of time that we've had over the course of the 12 months uh, the last 12 months which is just enormous it's huge where would that come from without our volunteers i i uh, yeah i don't think that the, the government realize probably just how huge it is yeah so it's really really important uh, the work that you're doing absolutely well saskia we'll link your website again and all in the show notes so people can find you is there any other ways that people get involved is there an application process or is it simply yeah there's a if you want to apply to be a volunteer or to work with us there's an application form for each just get in touch with us and we'll let you have those Uh, you can contact us on facebook on linkedin and on our own websites as well okay so there's lots of ways to get in touch i'll I'll, I'll link all of those in the in the show notes so that we can get people in fact i'll I'll just share it with buddies as well because we've got groups and things there just to see if any of our buddies because some of our work has changed slightly now that restrictions are lifting quite a lot of our buddies are are no longer supporting people because their lives have gone back to normal so we've got a suite of buddies who all want to continue being volunteers but maybe in a different capacity so um yeah definitely share that with our our group brilliant 
So let's let's talk a little bit about yourself, Saskia. Uh, wonderful work that you're doing, obviously with your charity, but also there's a, I know that you're a busy, very busy lady, but there's a, a whole suite of things that you call your superpowers, which is your like hidden conditions and your 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 mental health as well. So I don't know really where to start, but if I if I name a few, and then you can kind of correct me if I've missed missed anything. But you talked a little bit about it when you were on the podcast before. You were diagnosed with with bipolar polar yeah um, you're dyslexic and also diabetic yes and um you also have ulcerative colitis and you've also suffered with a series of with heart attacks so I I don't know where you want to begin but at, at the start like getting diagnosed with with all of this kind of thing that's where we started with a lot of our um our guests about what that process was like and how it was for you and and how it impacted your mental health obviously bipolar would be be one of the largest ones yeah but- I mean bi- bipolar was was first Um, and you know bipolar is one of those conditions that really you need to have had it for a few years before you can start to see the patterns emerge that Mm. that you're experiencing so uh, probably with hindsight it started with puberty but it really emerged um, after the death of my son in 1991 so I was very young I was 20 uh, well 1990 so I was 20 when he died and that that triggered the, the symptoms to really get severe um, but it wasn't until um, I was 28 that I was properly diagnosed so it took eight, eight years oh, yeah. and in that eight years I'd been hospitalized um, on acute psychiatric units for, for three times and it was the fourth time that I was in hospital that uh, my dad actually contacted the psychiatrist and told them that um, bipolar disorder runs in my mum's family and that my mum was bipolar and I had no idea it's it's not spoken about it's uh, in in my mother's family it's like a a bit of a dirty secret very very old-fashioned ideas about poor mental health but with that disclosure which I really wish had come a lot sooner but uh, you know didn't so with that disclosure really came the formal diagnosis um, and then being able to start me on medication that might actually have an impact on the bipolar disorder Uh, so that was a very very unhappy and miserable few years um, of my life firstly because obviously I'd lost my son Matthew um, and then just not being well and not understanding what I was experiencing until it was properly diagnosed and and then you've got this whole kind of mixed thing and I think it's the same with any condition any chronic condition whether it's a mental health issue or a physical health issue is that you've got some relief that there's a diagnosis that there's a label that you can attach to this so it can start to help you to understand it and then there's also this shock at the diagnosis and this kind of denial that you go through which is almost like a a grieving process where you have to come to terms with the fact that this is your reality and this is your your life and I think that probably took me another another three years really after the diagnosis and of different medication regimes and trying to to get myself balanced before I really felt like I could own that and 
feel like I was taking some responsibility for it and taking some control over it. And so since since then, so for the past 17 years, I've actually had a, um, a self-management plan, which is a hefty document, about eight pages of, of uh, what I've learned about myself, what I know works, what I know things look like when I'm not well, what things look like when I am well, what I can do when I'm well to stay well, what I can do when I'm not well to get well. By 33, I'd kind of come to terms with it and was really working to understand it and really recording how I was and how I coped. And that's where my self-management plan has come from. And it's something that I rewrite every time there's a change. I, I rewrite it every time there's a new a new condition to add or a new medication um, or I've learned something new about myself and how I cope so it's really been a, a living live document that I've used over the years and, and actually last year uh, a friend of mine adapted it to be a kind of a template for other people with bipolar disorder and um, it's been shared in some groups and people are, are, are kind of adapting it to meet their own oh, needs so it's, so it's really a useful tool but all the other conditions actually are directly linked to bipolar disorder even oh. though they don't apart from dyslexia which I, I had from being a child mm-hmm. I was first diagnosed with that when I was having struggles at, at school when I was about 15 it wasn't really a known thing back then like it is now so um, it took quite a while for it to be recognised but the, the medication that you have to go on for serious and, um, and enduring mental health conditions like bipolar, they have a physical impact on your body. So psychiatric medication, you're kind of making a decision, which they don't actually talk to you about because they're only interested in dealing with the condition <laughs> that they've got in front of them. Yeah, not, um, not all the other side effects and everything. Yeah, yeah. They, they don't. I mean, you're in hospital because you've you've severely, severely unwell, and actually the the considerations about the medication are not important at that time. You just have to get well again, otherwise you probably wouldn't survive anyway. I definitely wouldn't have. But they uh, the medication, psychiatric medication, cause metabolic syndrome for me, which is a, a whole uh, range of metabolic conditions like diabetes. So it. it caused me to to gain a lot of weight to be diagnosed with diabetes it affects your immune system lithium in fact has caused my hearing loss so I have hearing aids and they didn't they said we need to check but now we've seen that you're on lithium we know why you're hearing Mm. is losing its um I suppose it's gone so that I can hear but just in a smaller range so diabetes came from that and then ulcerative colitis is a deficiency in the immune system also linked to metabolic syndrome. So these are, are, are not unusual things for people that are on the kind of medication that I'm on, antipsychotic medication and um, lithium, which is a, a mood stabiliser, but is also a heavy metal salt. So it's not great for the human body and it can easily poison you if it's out of its out of its therapeutic range and and that's not for me that's not a criticism of the drugs because the drugs have given me a life that I wouldn't have had they've allowed me to be much more stable uh, with my mood they've allowed me to function and to work where a lot of people really struggle to maintain any kind of 
routine because the extremes of mood with bipolar disorder are just so disruptive and so can be so destructive. So when I'm explaining this, I, I don't want anybody listening to think, oh, you know, those are bad drugs. They're not. It's a it's a payoff for me. So the issues with physical well-being that come as a result of that to me it's it's kind of a balance that I have to go through on a regular basis so in in 2018 when I had my first heart attacks the the doctor the cardiologists after my surgery were saying well really it would be better if you weren't on these medications because they aren't helpful to your heart but to me my mental health is more important than my physical health because without my mental health I definitely can't survive so it's a it's a really difficult payoff and balancing act I think um being diagnosed with diabetes was very quick they knew it was metabolic syndrome because of the medication that that I'm on um so that means that you are more susceptible to high cholesterol, you're more susceptible to insulin resistance, so you develop type 2 diabetes, um, and your immune system is just less strong, I guess. So conditions that affect the immune system, like um, shingles, I've had shingles multiple times, and the ulcerative colitis, that's an immune deficiency. So and being diagnosed with that was also very quick. I, I went into hospital. I think for the most part, it's it's much easier for the health profession to cope with things that are visible, you know, where they can't be arguable. There's a test. They've done it. They know you're diabetic. They've done a, a, col- a colonoscopy. They could see the colitis visually. It's there. Um, so, you, you know, those are, are relatively quick things. But again... Nobody really ever talks to you about how to integrate these conditions into your life so that you can function. So, and for me, that's really critically important because I don't want to be medicated to the point that the condition is managed, but I have no quality of life. So again, it's a balancing act with psychiatric medicines, with medicines for your physical health. For me, I don't want to take so many painkillers that my brain doesn't work I don't want to take so many psychiatric medications that I'm you know like a zombie and I felt like that at times in the past it's really important that I can go to work that I can be there for my family for our adult children and all our grandchildren I think those things are really important to me so I'm I feel like I've spent the last kind of 20 odd years of my life negotiating with health professionals whether they be mental health professionals or uh, general health professionals negotiating with them that yes but I still need to function Mm -hmm. so what you've given me isn't working for me because I can't get out of bed so that and that's just not going to to help me because my job in particular is really important to my sense of self-worth and my self-identity and and I feel like I really need that Um, and there have been times when it's not been possible for me to work and I've been off sick for in some situations years at a time but I feel like I'm, I'm better when I am working and the same with my family you know I don't want to be having to be cared for all the time I want to also be a carer and be there to look after 
my family um, and be as active as I can be. But then, you know, there's also real life and I have to manage those things. And if you're looking at chronic conditions in this series, you've probably come across the spoon theory um, already. Uh, and I just think it's the best theory ever, you know, and it totally does help you to understand how people cope when they've got chronic health conditions. So, you know, say you start every day with 10 spoons and for a perfectly healthy average person, they might use one spoon to get up, get the kids ready, get themselves ready, get themselves to work and start the day. And they might use another spoon for, for work. But for, for me, each of the individual tasks within that can take a spoon. So just getting up actually sometimes can take a whole spoon. Just having a shower sometimes and that's the most I can do for the day. And I think that's the same for many of us. And we 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 have to we have no choice but to rest. When we want to rest, it's not tired in the way that an average person might feel tired after a day of work. It's a deep, exhausting fatigue that is bone deep. You cannot drag yourself through it or or up from it. And that's all of your spoons gone for the day. And I know, I know when I wake up in the morning, if that's what my day is going to hold, I can tell when I wake up, first of all, because I can't wake up. It's so hard to wake up. I'll say to my partner, today's going to be a non-day. And and that's what I've (laughs) called them over the years, these days where I just, I probably won't wake up until six o'clock in the evening. Um, unless it's to go to the toilet because the fatigue has just hit me it's it's knocked me for six now people manage that differently I manage that using annual leave which I definitely wouldn't recommend as being a great strategy for other people but for me it means that I don't end up with a big sick leave um, record of of absences from work and I feel like I'm in control of that time Um, although as an organisation we do have free mental health days that people can take and you can take leave that's um, granted by your manager if things are particularly challenging for you so we've got a very very supportive mental health contract with the team yeah we've put those policies in place because how could I not as a leader of an organization with these issues myself put things in place to support other staff so it I I recognize that I'm very lucky to be in a position where that's possible I think what people forget sometimes is what people with chronic health conditions and serious mental health conditions bring to their team. So if you're an employer and you're thinking, oh my God, I need somebody more reliable, more mm-hmm. consistent, somebody that's not going to be off sick. Well, well, yeah, that that might be the case depending on the role, but, but what we bring is um, an understanding of the big picture um, creativity usually because you have to be creative to live with these conditions you have to work around normal situations to make them accessible for you to make them work for you uh, we bring a compassion so working with people working with vulnerable people that 
you know, I think is quite unique. So there are real benefits to employing people with these conditions, either as volunteers or, or, as, or as staff or to have them on boards. One of our board members has uh, fibromyalgia, so understands what the staff team might go through if there are members of staff that are struggling. So I think for, for me, it's it's just that constant negotiation and it's that in itself is exhausting because it starts when you wake up in the morning and you're like, what will this day, what do I have to give to this day and what will this day bring yeah. for me? Um, because sometimes I don't have anything to give to that day and, you know, the people around me. I, I like to think, um, I've worked in Cheshire for 11 years now and I like to think that the people that have worked with me both within my own organisation and in other organisations like the police and the council and other local voluntary sector organisations I like to think that they see the value I bring and are flexible enough to work around the challenges that working with me brings because of my health conditions but yeah it's it's not something that you can do easily and I guess my my biggest thing is that if people could just understand how relentless it is how constant it is so even on a good day you're anticipating what the impact will be of having had that good day will the next day be an exhausted day will you not be able to function it's just complex um, and that's why I find having a plan that is absolutely specific to me and by now my plan has in it the ulcerative colitis issues and just the things that you learn to measure because that is a very unpleasant condition nobody wants to talk about bowels and poo and you know any of the stuff that that you have to deal with with ulcerative colitis but you know you learn to be prepared to always have a set of spare clothes with you to always have a clean up pack to always be able to know where the nearest toilets are when you're on a journey or or when you're um, at a different venue so for me it is about whatever your condition you learn about that condition and you learn about that condition for you because that's different for everybody yeah, there's a, a few things that you mentioned there because I'd never heard about the spoon thing until I got diagnosed of uh, MS myself. Because uh, I, uh, when we talked about this before we started recording, but fatigue, this extreme tiredness, it's not just being a bit tired after it is like, like you say, just not being able to get out of bed. Like one of the other ladies spoke to about MS, she was like, I just had to lay down in my office. I just, I, I was that exhausted. That's yeah. all that I could do. But yeah, the, the spoon theory is, and I'll link to that in the uh, the, the podcast notes because it's a really great way of being able to explain to other people. Yeah, it just explains. Like. When I, I remember when I first came across it, it must be a good 12 years ago now when I introduced and I, I shared it with my partner. And even my partner was like, oh my God, that is that is exactly how it is, you know, and it, it becomes a like a, a secret language between people who've got chronic illness, doesn't it? You can yeah. say, you know, I've not got enough spoons for that. <laughs> and, and they start to understand. But, you know, I, I was at my son's yesterday because I babysit for my granddaughter one day a week. And he came in from work. He's, a, he's 30 this year. He's you know he works hard he starts work at, at five in the morning and he comes in at three in the afternoon and he had a nap on the couch because he was tired at the end of the day that's not what we're talking oh. about and um, the only way I can best describe it as you, you're incapable of anything 
I've spent days at a time where I could not walk to the bathroom. I was literally crawling on the floor just to go to the toilet um, because it was so bad. My whole body just was unable to function. And that was in the early days before I learned that you can't do what everybody else does and have these conditions. You absolutely have to give yourself the the time to rest when it's needed. Mm-hmm. Um, I mean, to be honest, the, the pandemic has really been it's a terrible thing to say, but been useful to me in the fact that this whole idea that you can work from home much more than you ever would have done before has really helped me because just that my journey to work is 40 minutes. So just that 80 minutes a day when I'm not traveling has made it easier for me on a on a day that maybe I'm starting to feel tired and it's maybe the difference between me tipping over to extreme fatigue and and actually being able to get through the the rest of the week so yeah I I guess I don't want to paint it all rosy there's a plan and I follow it and everything's great some days are really horrible some days are really hard very emotionally draining I have to weigh things up how much do I want to do this because I know there'll be an impact on me so I'm not as sociable as I'd like to be because I basically divide my energy up between my family and my job and if I added being sociable a lot into that something else would have to give there's nothing extra you can't stretch your energy like a healthy person can um to to be like oh yes I'll go to a a gig or I'll be out drinking till one o'clock in the morning yeah (laughs) never not gonna happen but if people come to my house, I can sit and have a a drink with them, and as long as I'm going to bed still at a reasonable time, I can I can cope with that. So yeah, it's uh yeah, it's just the the, the relentlessness of having to manage it all that I'd like a break from sometimes more than a break from the conditions themselves. Really, it's just what's it going to be today? It's like it's almost it's like you know have a well some people at work have a personal assistant that organizes all their meetings and things you need like a self-care personal assistant I mean to be honest I don't know what I'd do without my wife because she she really does make my life much more manageable by the, the things that she does to care for me so I don't need to worry about things like housework and and laundry because she knows that really I need my energy to go to work. And so she takes on more responsibility at home than than she should have to. And she also has learned over all these years we've been together that actually if it looks like I'm saying I, I can't wake up, that's it. The day is not is a non-day. And that's just the language we use between us. I'll tell her it's a non-day and she'll contact work and they'll rearrange my my stuff to be on a different day so it's um I really would struggle without all of the support that I get from her just the fact that she gets it and she doesn't guilt me a lot of people are made to feel like they're being lazy they're made to you know I've got friends with um ME and fibromyalgia where their relatives just feel like they're not making enough of an effort mm. and, and they if they could only have some clue of how much effort it is and I, I've never had to deal with any of that with my wife she's just brilliant you know she totally supports me 100% and that is a massive 
a massive factor in me being able to keep reasonably well. And I think it's not just that external judgment that you get from people because a lot of people with chronic conditions will do that to themselves. Oh, anyway. we do it to ourselves. Yeah. Absolutely. <laughs> it's It took me a long time to stop telling myself that I was lazy and stop feeling guilt that I was being lazy. Um, and literally just by every time I thought it, telling myself off and saying no, it's not lazy, it's rational, it's reasonable, it's a sensible response to the fatigue that you're experiencing. Mm -hmm. But we we are very, very good at that. I think women worse than men, actually. Yeah. Imposter syndrome, you know, we, oh. we even think we're imposters in our own illnesses. <laughs> it's ridiculous. <laughs> Absolutely, especially like when I when I spoke to Laura about her fibromyalgia, she went through that phase because there was a lot of healthcare professionals at that time that didn't even recognise it. Yeah, that didn't think it was a thing, and she said she started doubting herself and thinking, "Well, is there actually anything wrong with me?" And it was such a terrible situation to be. How how that impacts your mental health? Well, she's basically been gaslighted by the health mm. professionals that she's worked with, which you know makes your mental health suffer as well as your physical oh. health experiences. So it's not it's not okay at all. Um, but I I do think you know I think imposter syndrome is a massive thing, isn't it? It's this idea that somehow you aren't good enough. Somehow you're faking it. It's particularly prevalent in the workplace women yeah. often feel like they're going to be found out that they're not yeah, really good when enough and find out I can't, I can't I'm not actually as good and I can't do it exactly and, and and it's so when I found out years ago that this was an actual psychological syndrome with a name it just was like a lightning bulb went off you know I, I was kind of like wow it's a thing it's an actual thing so I now whenever we induct new staff I talk about this because when I first found out about it and discussed it in the workplace, everybody had experienced it and been silently torturing themselves in isolation, thinking everyone else was dead confident and doing, you know, absolutely happy. But it was bizarre when I realised that we do this to ourselves over our conditions. You know, I could sit in the bowel clinic and speak to the person next to me and it's almost like, well, my colitis isn't as bad as their colitis. So what am I doing here? And what a stupid, stupid thought. And women victims of abuse. I mean, men do experience it too. I, I just found more women who experience it. But women victims of abuse, my abuse wasn't as bad as their abuse. So I shouldn't be getting this service. I'm wasting this service. No, you know, we're all as equally valid and worthy as one another and there is no hierarchy of suffering that you know makes us less worthy than somebody that seems to be suffering more it's always suffering is an individual mm. experience that shouldn't be compared with other people wow, there's, there's not like it's not a competition it's not a competition <laughs> and it's not a hierarchy we don't rate one another do we well I'm a gold star um person with chronic conditions because I've got more than one and you'll be a bronze that's not how it <laughs> operates there really there really really isn't and we need to be really good at supporting each other about that because uh, you know if that's the day that you can't function it's not up to me to decide, well, I'm sure you could if you made an effort, because actually, you know yourself. I know 
on a day when I say this is a non-day, it's a non-day because all I will be able to do is sleep. I will not be able to get up. I won't be able to read. I won't be able to watch telly, go on the computer. I will literally be lay, dozing on and off all day, just feeling completely broken. I had a doctor once who compared it to being like a battery, a rechargeable battery. And he said, a rechargeable battery is great if you don't ever let it 100% run down. And once you've ha- you have, you can never get it 100% filled up. And it runs out faster all the time because it, it had been let to completely drain. And that's what I always think about my energy levels. Other people might have energy levels that go up and down, but mine has been so depleted that it you know it takes a lot more rest to fill it up or to get it part filled and it takes a lot less activity to empty it out again so that that's just how it is that's a good analogy I've, I've seen I've seen posts like that on social media about you know you wouldn't let this you wouldn't let your battery on your phone run down like this why do why do people let do it to themselves yeah um, one thing I really wanted to talk to you about is about the help that you got. So a lot of the people I've spoken to have been able to kind of, well, they've had, no, haven't been able, well, they have been able to, but they've had to go away and work out things that work for them and look after themselves and being creative around living, like you said, an everyday life with these conditions. This self-care plan that you put together, was that out of the result of because you weren't getting the help and support that you needed or where well, does that the start of it actually um, was that my I had a, a, a mental health care coordinator mm. right back in the early noughties and she managed to get the health authority to pay for me to go on a course, a residential course in Wales, unheard of these days, mm. um, in Wales that was being run by Bipolar UK um, and it was a self-management, it was basically aiming at getting people to look at their patterns and develop a basic plan of self-management and that was a four-day thing it was absolutely exhausting but it was absolutely brilliant Mm -hmm. really really useful what we came away with after that was a kind of one sheet of paper just with basic things that you recognized there were patterns and triggers and and that really helped me to identify some of my triggers for mood changes and some of the things that I I didn't cope well with so for example tiredness Mm -hmm. letting myself get too tired so pushing myself too far and then being too tired was a trigger for a, um, a a change in mood and also big life events whether they were good or bad would switch me into an episode of mania or an episode of depression but that's where it started from and from then I've just worked really hard rigorously self-mapping my mood and every time I have a bit of insight about myself or I reflect and I, I think oh well this is why that happened then I've integrated it which is why it's grown and grown and grown so it started off being what does depression look like and what are the triggers what does uh, an elevated mood look like and what are the triggers and now it's triggers for physical health triggers for mixed episodes in the in the uh, condition as well but more importantly it's become a map for well-being so these are the things that I have to do when I'm well consistently <laughs> to stay well and that has been the, the biggest bit of learning for me so even if I'm having a non-day 
there are some basic things that I have committed to myself that I will do. So I will brush my teeth. I will go outside and have five minutes of daylight, even if it's in my pyjamas, standing at the back door, I'll have five minutes of daylight. And that I will only have three non-days in a row. So that fourth day, no matter what, I will make myself go for a 10-minute walk, even if it's just around the block or around the garden. And it's I've had episodes, depressive episodes, where I've been very, very low and all I've managed for three months is that 10-minute walk every day But slow and, and 10 minutes med- meditation every day. But slowly but surely over the three months, my days got lighter and got brighter and I started to see a light at the end of the tunnel and that was a horrible experience that was in 2013 it was the worst episode I've had in a long time and my wife just made sure I ate something made sure I left the house for for 10 minutes some days I really felt like I had to be dragged around to to get that air but that's what brought me back to a more level place Um, and so you know they sound like tiny things they're not important but depending where you are they're possibly hard things to to manage but daylight some mindfulness even if it's just mindful breathing for a couple of minutes um and making sure that I, at the very least i brush my teeth and i make sure that i have something to eat so they're the things at my very lowest that are the bare minimum that i'll try to achieve and I know that you said there that the very small things but the very small things like that when you are that low when you were in that state well, they feel impossible yeah, yeah. yeah they feel they feel impossible absolutely and I, I remember 2013 the three months that I was in a such an awful depressive state and I really I have more self-awareness when I'm depressed than I do when I'm manic but and previously I've been hospitalized in the state that I was in but every day my wife was just like right we're, we're going to go and feed the ducks it's a 10 minute walk we feed the ducks we walk back you can go back to bed <laughs> you know and she kind of knew what she knows what's on my plan so she was just kind of pushing and for that whole three months I think the only thing I ate I lost loads of weight (laughs) not in a good way Uh, but the only thing I ate every day was a a pizza bread it was like the only thing I could stomach this small pizza bread because I just was so depressed I couldn't even Mm. contemplate eating I didn't want to eat I took no pleasure in eating I just managed to force this pizza bread (laughs) I can't look at the things now Yeah, that probably wouldn't be the first thing on your menu now. No, but then by the end of the three months, I was, I won't say I was better, but I was definitely more coming towards back to my normal balance of, of mood. Um, and it took me, and again, and, and always, nearly always, these episodes, if I look back over my life, and this is, I suppose, the thing of bipolar is that it's a combination. It's clearly got a genetic link, else there wouldn't be so much of it in my mum's family. But every major episode I've had has been linked to a major life issue. So first emerged most extreme after Matthew died. And in 2012, my middle son had had a tumour that needed to be operated on and he nearly died. It was in his head. It had gone right into his brain and it took seven hours surgery and the whole thing was just immensely stressful and there I am six months or so later 
and something massive happens. When Jenna died uh, in, in 2017, there I am in 2018, five heart attacks. I mean, the, the emotional toll of major life disturbances has a physical impact on me. Okay. And there's no getting away from that at all. You know, I can't, I just know that I need to take care of myself if anything major happens because I'm brilliant in the crisis. I'm a brilliant crisis manager, calm. People come to me in a crisis. I, I run an organisation that deals with people in crisis. I'm absolutely, it's my skill set. What tends to happen is once the crisis is long over and everything's calmed down, that's when something will happen that might seem completely unrelated and for many years I did think it was completely unrelated um, and obviously isn't it's it's clearly just the emotional toll on your physical mm. body that I think happens to us all but we're not always aware of it I think I think obviously there that you're you're being there for everybody else during that time that crisis is happening and it's almost like well I'll be all right now I'll I'll stay intact and then it's that that knock on effect later down the line where you're just like okay now everybody's okay now I can have my kind yeah. of, um moment but like yeah. you said just then about that self awareness and it sounds like you are very self aware and a lot of this is about that isn't it tracking these like your self care plan tracking things that you need to do for your mental health or uh, noticing when things are going to be triggering it as well. Yeah, and I definitely wasn't for a very long time. Certainly my younger years, definitely up until about the 33, I think, once my medication got sorted, I don't think I was even aware, you know. I, I wasn't aware of how I felt in my body. I remember being in hospital one time on um, the acute psychiatric unit and just feeling so agitated I felt like there was something under my skin and it was really the first time I'd felt physically an impact of what was happening to me emotionally and, and mentally and it, it made me start to want to stop and just you know be aware it's that it's that mindfulness isn't it what are you feeling what are you seeing what are you tasting what are you hearing and just being able to bring yourself back to the physicality of the moment really helps you to start that reflection and self-awareness and ground yourself in the physical experience of the whatever it is that's going on for you and then you start to recognize things so then you start to to realize oh actually there's tension here or you know I'm I'm feeling nauseous or whatever it is that you can then respond to that. And that starts the self-care process of dealing with the the way you feel emotionally. So, you know, I'll, I'll often feel very, very nauseous and sick and it doesn't, I don't feel agitated. I don't feel anxious. I'm not aware of anxiety or stress or because I think they're just such those friends of mine yeah I don't I don't recognize them anymore um but I can recognize that I'm feeling nauseous and so I'll I'll go and I'll lie down and maybe listen to an audiobook or some music or just meditate and then I just feel so much better afterwards not just that I feel less nauseous but I feel more relaxed I feel calmer and I hadn't been aware of of, of not feeling those things so I, I think Definitely. For me, when I say it's relentless, it's that self-awareness that's relentless that I have to be, I have to be constantly self-aware of what I'm feeling, what I'm 
feeling physically, what I'm thinking, what uh, is going on for me. Is it sensible? Are my thoughts rational? Do I need to challenge them? Do I need to rethink them? So especially negative thoughts about myself, then I'll try to reframe and be more rational about. But that self-awareness for me, it starts in the morning when I wake up, it's constant. I don't feel relaxed from it very often, to be honest. And But it is what keeps me reasonably well and and like you said before uh, when we were chatting it's different for everybody so that's everybody's know. different I mean I wouldn't say to anybody oh if you've got bipolar and this is what you should do or if you've got ulcerative colitis this is what you should do or um dyslexia I'm dyslexic I have two screens that helps me at work if you have two screens and you're dyslexic that will be better for you because it, it could be completely irrelevant you know and um, all I can do is say that I've learned what works for me by being reflective and self-aware that's the bit I'd recommend is learning about yourself and how you react to things not that what works for me works will work for other people and it, and it's trying these things isn't it as well like as long yeah, as I, and what works for me it might work for you just try and if it doesn't then well mindfulness know. is is the one thing the first time I ever came across mindfulness and meditation I was on an acute psychiatric unit in Bury. it was the first time I'd been hospitalized I was in my early 20s I had no idea what was going on I was really unwell and they wanted me to do this meditation and so in the daytime everybody off the ward had to go into this room and sit around in chairs and then the person leading the meditation led the meditation I wouldn't shut my eyes I thought I was giddy I thought it was ridiculous and stupid I thought it was hippie bullshit I remember (laughs) just being kind of like what is what is going on and then eight years later somebody gave me a a CD with a guided meditation on it that was really nice. It was like a story. Um, And I started listening to that when I was about 28. And I've basically meditated every single day of my life for the past 22 years Mm -hmm. um, before I go to sleep now. And I can't even believe that I was... I do this when I thought it was just so ridiculous and such a joke and actually in our service we do mindful breathing with every single client whether they're an adult or a child I think I told you last time that for the perpetrators we call it military self-control and because that breathing helps them to take control of of their um, behavior and what they're feeling that's leading Mm -hmm. to that behavior Uh, we do it with everybody and I I just find it really amusing that my own initial reaction to it was just definitely not having this (laughs) Um, and yet it's it really probably is the single thing that's most transformed how I cope with my Mm -hmm. self yeah it can be very very powerful that but like you say you have to be in the right frame of mind I guess or the right circumstances to take it on board you really you really do you really do and I was not there you know my my son had died 18 months earlier that was is probably the that is without question the worst thing that's ever happened to me in my my entire life it was completely a shock unexpected it was sudden infant death syndrome I was 20 I never expected my child to to die or to have to deal with anything like that I'd led quite a sheltered life up to that point 
and I just was lost, completely lost. And in fact, one of the reasons that I was regularly misdiagnosed with depression is because that first major episode was triggered after that loss. And so it seems completely natural. Of course, you would be depressed yes. after you've lost a child um, in that way. And, and it's horrific. But actually, bipolar is something different altogether. So uh, I'm glad it was eventually properly diagnosed. I mean, I'm, all, I'm also all for people who don't believe in diagnosis and don't believe in medication. If they can manage their lives in whatever way they manage their lives, I think that's absolutely fantastic. But I know for me, this particular regimen of medication that I've been on for the past kind of 17 years has worked, it continues to work. And I, I definitely, and to me, it's worth all of the health issues that it's brought with it as well, because my life would have been completely different. Like you saying, it's a bouncing act, isn't it? It is, and absolutely. Finding out what is more, more, most important to you. Yeah, it's like when you take steroids. Nobody wants to take steroids. They're horrible for you. They make you sensitive to the sun. They make you swell up. They damage your internal organs. But it's the lesser of two evils because... Uh, you know, I was on them for quite a long time when I first was diagnosed with ulcerative colitis. Is the illness or the medication worse? For me, bipolar is worse than anything the medication can bring. You've given us so much food for thought there, uh, Saskia, and, and so much hints and, and things that have helped you. But with all these different conditions, and I suppose the bipolar in, in particular, if someone was listening and they needed some help and support, what kind of advice could you give to them? I would say the best thing you can possibly do, and I know this sounds ridiculous, is get on Facebook and find a small bipolar group that's yeah. personal. No more than kind of 50 odd people to 100 people, not one of the massive ones. And make friends in there. I've got friends I've made 12 15 years ago on facebook who don't live in the uk they're from all over the world with bipolar and they have been my constant support and i've been there for the past there's probably 12 of us all together it's been incredible um also go to bipolar uk learn everything you can about the condition and then forget it right <laughs> and learn about the condition and how it affects you um Read Kay Redfield Jameson, her books. She is a um, she's a, a, a doctor, an American doctor, um, neurosurgeon actually, who is bipolar, and she has written about her own experiences um, as a person with bipolar, and it is just so affirming you're like oh thank god that's not just me that's also other people and just remember that your brain will feed you this imposter syndrome bullshit don't let it take control you're not lazy you're not imagining things this is an illness just like any other illness it needs to be treated and the best person to treat it is you alongside whatever health professionals you get but research 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 about any condition but obviously for me bipolar's the been the biggest the biggest teacher mm -hmm. who did you say that lady was Kay bedfield uh... Kay redfield jameson jameson right okay yeah. i shall look her up i've just oh, got... her book an unquiet mind is just amazing 
I'm going to add that to my reading list. I'm actually reading Have You Read Any Barony Gordon's books? Oh, yes, I have, yeah. <laughs> I've just started reading some of those. And um, considering, like, she's talking about all of her, like, problems with, like, OCD and bulimia and stuff, it's a very entertaining It's, it's very funny and it's yeah. very relatable. Kay Redfield Jameson's Unquiet Mind, I, I read probably about 20 years ago and just was like, oh... Right. And stuff that I hadn't even realised was part of being bipolar for me. It just made me realise like, oh, I remember when I did that or I did something similar to that. And you think, oh, I, I don't know myself as well as I thought I did. But it's just beautifully written. It's a really good read. OK, I'll link to that in the in the podcast notes as well. And I'll put it on my reading list. Um, it's been brilliant to talk to you, Saskia. Thank you so much for coming on. I really enjoyed our first podcast with it with you, and and this has even been even more enlightening. You're such an interest. You should write your own book. <laughs> I wonder where to start. <laughs> You've had such a busy and well, I want to say traumatic life with, with all the things that you've talked about and challenging life, and for you to be sat here telling me all about it is just a testament to your your character and your strengths as well um so I, I, from the bottom of my heart for coming and share, sharing with us everything that you have today um it is a happiness uh, a, a podcast so i know i've asked you about what's been going on with you uh work-wise with the fantastic charity you work with but since uh, you last spoke to us and now we're halfway through 2021 what's making you happy this year um my garden Oh, it's yeah. absolutely making me happy. I love it. At the start of COVID, I um, went a bit wild and bought myself a hot tub. Oh, um, lovely. That's self-care and, as well. Absolutely. Yeah. And, um, and I, I don't have, it's not a huge garden, but I have lots of pots with plants in and I grow lots of veg. A couple of weeks ago, we had 10 of our grandchildren staying over and they were all in the hot tub and in the garden and it was just wonderful. So I love my garden. I have to say my wife makes me happy because we laugh every single day and she's just the best person I've ever met in my entire life. And then I've gone down to four days at work and on a Wednesday now I babysit every week for my youngest grandchild, uh, Lily May, who's 10 months old. So yesterday I just had the loveliest day. She's at a very smiley, very lovely phase and do you know, I did not think about work even once like from the start <laughs> to the finish of the day. She's that distracting and adorable. So those are, those are my big three, I think. Yeah. Is that um, your latest edition, your 17th grandchild? Yes, my 17th yeah. grandchild. <laughs> so I figured if I ever want to regularly babysit for any of my grandchildren you know because I always thought when I had grandchildren I'd be kind of older and retired and I'd be able to help out and um, I, I actually need to do it now in case she's the last <laughs> grandchild so uh, in case how many more do you want <laughs> well I, I, you could keep them coming for me I love, I love it <laughs> Oh, that, that's amazing. And so thankfully as well, with restrictions being lifted slightly as well, that you can go and spend time with her as well. Yeah, it's great. When you, you couldn't. I go, I go, yeah, it was awful because she was born in lockdown. And I think I saw her four times um, until I started babysitting for her a few weeks ago when her mum went back to work after maternity leave. And I go over on a Tuesday night. So I see her older brother as well then and spend the night there have her on the Wednesday and then on the Wednesday afternoon go over to my other sons and see another five of my grandchildren and then 
I just feel like we get lots more grandchild time in and it's yeah. lovely. I bet they love coming around and spending time in your hot tub. Oh my goodness, they absolutely loved it. They were all there in their swimming costumes. I think at one point there were eight children in the hot tub. <laughs> they were just splashing everywhere. It practically needed refilling at the end, but I just I was sat there with my eldest son and he said I bet you feel like this was worth every penny now, don't you? <laughs> so, I do feel like that when I'm sat in it on my own. But uh, yeah, the kids absolutely love it. So yeah, the hot tub, my wife and babysitting for Lily May, not necessarily in that order, I must oh, don't hasten to say. <laughs> well, that sounds like there's uh, there's plenty of things to keep you happy in that. So yeah. Lovely Definitely. to hear. So thank you so much, Saskia. Uh, what I've said to uh, this series, actually, because I've had quite, invited quite a few previous podcast uh, guests on, maybe third time lucky, would you be willing to come back and, you know, in a few months' time again and tell, tell us about what's going on with Cheshire Without Abuse? And Yeah, definitely. Hopefully things will have relaxed a little bit. That'd be fantastic. Yeah, great. Well, it's lovely to see you, Kedron. Yes, again, virtually. Hopefully, yeah. you know, at some point. In next we week, the podcast, we be... I'll see you later. I'll see you later. Take care. Bye. You're listening to The Happiness Hub, part of the Redshift Community Podcast Network with me, Liz Parkin. And me, Kedron Elliott. Every episode, we'll share top tips on how to get happy and stay happy. So listen in, get involved and be happy.